I'm Chris Reback. This is Investigating Breast Cancer, the podcast of the Breast Cancer Research Foundation and conversations with the world's leading scientists studying breast cancer prevention, diagnosis, treatment, survivorship, and metastasis. Breast cancer and technology. At first glance, they seem like totally separate topics. After this conversation, you'll not only better understand the connection, but you'll be wanting to learn what comes next. As you'll hear, thanks to technology developed by our guest, Dr. Michael Wiggler, in collaboration with BCRF colleague James Hicks, researchers can now study breast cancer at the single cell level, setting the stage for the development of new diagnostic tools that will aid in therapeutic management of the disease. Since that discovery, Dr. Wiggler has continued to go small, focusing on the interactions between cancer cells and the host microenvironment. It's a fascinating approach. Some background. Dr. Wiggler is the Russell and Janet Doubleday Professor of Cancer Research at the Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory in New York. He is a recipient of numerous awards and honors and is a member of the National Academy of Science and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Dr. Wiggler also has been a BCRF investigator since 1998. Before our conversation, though, an ask from me to you. I hope you like these investigating breast cancer conversations, and if so, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to iTunes, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Thank you for considering my request. Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation with Dr. Wiggler. Dr. Wiggler, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. My pleasure. Sometimes these conversations start broad and then go small with you. I feel like we should move in the opposite direction. You've been said to fight cancer one cell at a time. What does that mean? Well, I gave a lecture uh, to um, a group of, of women that... Uh, contribute to the lab. And at the time that I gave the lecture, we were doing um, some relatively revolutionary things with studying single cancer cells. So we opened up a field at that time. That was around 2012 or 13. And so I named my lecture Fighting Cancer One Cell at a Time because it, it sounded good. <laughs> I agree. It really it, it did. I like it. It is a bit of a misnomer, oh. um, but I wanted people to be interested in in what was going to come. And what I was describing at that time was work that had been supported, uh, in fact, by the BCRF, um, which involved looking at the uh, changes that occur in each cancer cell um, and inferring stuff by doing that. And the kinds of things that we were able to infer uh, had to do with cancer heterogeneity, which means are all the cancer cells uh, cut from the, exactly the same cloth, or are there two tribes of cancer cells in what looks, you know, like otherwise a single tumor, or are there more than that? And we began to study that, and one of our observations um, was that many cancers contain many tribes, hmm. all ultimately descended probably from the same ancestor, but nevertheless that ancestor has uh, produced um, many different uh, spawns, if you like. And that raised some important clinical and biological questions. The clinical questions were, 
if a cancer is heterogeneous, is that a worse kind of cancer? Uh, if um, the cancer is heterogeneous, are there are the, are the different tribes helping each other, or are they competing? And um, in the first case, the question is relevant to what you could call a staging the cancer. That is, you want to know, does somebody have um, a cancer that the patient and the physician are going to have to fight very hard to defeat, or uh, is the kind of cancer where the patient um, can look forward to having a successful outcome? And the second question had to, had to do with the biology, um, which we haven't we haven't gotten to the biology part of that yet, but it would provide a way where maybe you could turn cancer against cancer, mm. uh, so that if the uh, cancer cells are uh, helping each other, maybe you won't only have to target one of the two cancer types, and the other cancer would fold its hand. Uh, if the cancers were competing, there might be some other way in which you could utilize that to help the cancer defeat itself. So that was um, where we were at about 2012 or 13 when I gave a lecture with that title. Subsequently, lots of people like that title, and they've, they've, they've taken that title and used it in their own lectures for a variety of different, uh, different things. Um, but I think I'll stop I, I here. Hope that, I hope to... that you get. I hope that you get residuals on that. I mean, you you trademarked the whole thing, right? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't, and I can't be absolutely sure that I was the first one to use it. But I think I was. Okay. So what happened before that? Because on the clinical side, what you're describing, and and me kind of listening to you and interpreting it as a layperson. Um, yeah. So it's identified that I have cancer, whether that's, I guess, breast cancer. I guess first question is, was that your work was not, um, was it or was it not um, focused solely on uh, the microenvironment of a breast cancer cell, one cell at a time, or was it cancer cells more generally? We tend to work on breast cancer whenever we can, hmm. um, but breast cancer is representative of all cancers. Yeah. Um, but when we can do work with breast cancer, we do work with breast cancer. Yeah. Uh, those experiments that I'm describing to you were done in breast cancer. Okay. So, so I understand. And, and before that, let's say, you know, on the, on the clinical side, um, and this is me trying to, you know, listening to you and, and trying to interpret just how, how huge this type of, um, evolution, revolution would be before that, was it that, so I, I learned that I have cancer, or a woman learns that she has breast cancer, and yeah. then the question was, well, how bad is it? How should we treat it? What needs to come next? And by by focusing, being able to focus in that micro environment on that single cell, did you what, what transformation from a real human point of view was able to to come about because of that finding? Um, we're still in the stage of um, acceptance. This I, is you have to understand that medical practice is uh, understandably highly conservative, mm. and I think the clinical community, um, as far as I know, is using single cell research 
is are using single cell analysis only in the research environment. That is, it's not made its way to clinical testing. And and how? What's the, this? Yep. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. The, the closest that we've come to that is a collaboration um, with people in the prostate cancer area. Mm. Uh, in prostate cancer, there is a big problem as to whether when somebody detects cancer, uh, should they have their prostate removed. It's a little different than breast cancer. Yes. Uh, in breast cancer, you see a lesion, you take it out. Prostate cancer, they're not quite sure when you see a lesion they don't really have the luxury of it grows differently than in breast cancer. It spreads out more quickly than in breast cancer within the prostate. So there the question is, should the patient have their prostate removed or not? So uh, prostate as a field, prostate cancer as a field is in greater need of evaluating the severity of a cancer than is the population with breast cancer. So the field that is maybe closest to adopting single-cell technology are the people who look at prostate cancers and are trying to determine whether the prostate needs to come out or not. And is it, but in breast cancer, it's, it's not yet um, really too much on the horizon. It's, in clinical, it's not in clinical practice, it's in research. And um, you could still ask for breast cancer. Um, just how aggressive one should be with the chemotherapy. Um, I'm not a clinician, but there must be uh, decisions that the clinician has to use uh, that measure um, this, you know, the aggressiveness of the treatment on the one hand versus the risk on the other, both of, on one hand, succumbing to the cancer, on the other, of having side effects from the treatment. So that equation is a, a delicate equation. And the more information, if I were a breast cancer patient, I would want information about what is my relative risk uh, of various therapies. All that information is not not yet being integrated into the advice I think that people get when they show up with breast cancer. Do you see that? Currently, people... People use, and I have to understand, I'm not a, I'm not a medical doctor, yeah. but people by and large um, use pathology and a few molecular markers, maybe three or four different molecular markers, to classify the cancer's risk to the patient. But I think one can do better than that. But um, that will happen slowly over time. Yeah, t- talk to me. Yeah, I'm, is it... Yeah, yeah. Is that because of the understandable uh, conservative nature of medicine? Is it because people in any field um, are accustomed to doing things the way they have done them, which makes a lot of sense? Oh, that's and- certainly part of it. The other part of it is that to know anything, you have to do a fairly large study. Mm. Yeah, of course. And, and those tend to be very expensive. Now, if you're a drug company... You're you're willing to spend you know ten or twenty million dollars, up to a hundred million dollars to test the efficacy efficacy of a drug. But if you're a diagnostic company, or you're just a pathology lab at a hospital, you don't have that kind of uh, resources. So it's partly economics, partly um, 
tradition. Are you? I'm curious about the technology involved and and how one starts to discover facts on a single cell basis and and really working in that micro environment. You know, going going back to my first question to you, so so often. Um, as I'm privileged to have these conversations, um, you know, the ideas kind of start really big and it feels to me, and, and you'll tell me if I'm interpreting your work um, incorrectly, you are, you know, laser focused in, you know, going down to the, to the cell level. Are, are you able to explain how that technology works in, in kind of layperson's terms? Is it, it what, and, and how did, how did that technology advance? What, what, what should we know about that technology? You're asking this is um, sort of for the historical interest. How did we get? How did we get to that? Yeah. That how did we get, yeah. Yeah. Please. Oh, that's easily explained. It's very understandable. Um, but let me start with a little personal history. I'll be very yes, brief. No, that, please. Um, I was one of the first labs to start studying human oncogenes. These are the genes that cause cancers to grow. And a large hope has been, and it's been borne out in, in many cases, that if you understand the oncogenes and you develop drugs against them, you'll have therapies for cancer. It's been most uh, effective in, the, in some of the leukemias, only partially effective in other solid cancers. There's some examples melanomas and lung cancers where by targeting oncogenes you have success. But around um, 2000, I became, um, I developed techniques to find oncogenes that were finding too many of them. Hmm. And it was, it was very clear that this was a tremendous jungle of great complexity. And so my work shifted to uh, estimating um, individual patient risk. And everything that I'll talk to you about that we do today is the result of that change in emphasis. So up till about 2000, we were in the sort of cancer gene discovery uh, research area. And then after 2000, we were in, let's get a, let's get a sense of what this individual's cancer genome looks like and what information can we gather broadly about the patient's cancer from that. We discovered in the first half decade that the total number of um, disruptions to the cancer genome correlated very well with the threat of the cancer. So I, I often talk about these as scars, that the cancer genome has scars. Hmm. And these scars arise by fighting, probably, with the patient's immune system uh, to get more blood to the, to the tumor. These are the mutations that the cancer had to accumulate as it you know, is struggling for dominance. And the more scars it has, um, in some sense, the closer it is to... Uh, to dominating and, and, and to killing the patient. So we had this observation. We published it, I think it was in 2006. And um, 
there were some exceptions to this. And the exceptions bothered me. The exceptions were there were patients that seemed to have pretty mild-looking, tame cancers who nevertheless died. So uh, we thought about why that would be, and we came to the conclusion that either these were different kinds of cancers or that the cancer was sampled incorrectly. So when you look at a sample, you take a little specimen of it, and that might not have been representative of all the cells in the, in the cancer. You're looking at a little region. And so we said, well, we're going to have to do something about the possibility that cancers are heterogeneous if we want to be able to determine the fate of the patient, the fate of the tumor in the patient, we have to sample from many places. And in the face of heterogeneity, we couldn't do better than looking at single cells from the cancer. And that's where the idea of doing single cells came from. It was to get an idea of, um, in some sense, the scope of cells that make up the cancer. Some might be fairly benign, that are, you know, just sort of there, sort of in, on on the on the sidelines, sort of watching things happen. And some of the cells in the cancer might be very, very aggressive. And um, it's the aggressive ones that we wanted to be able to see. So uh, they could be hidden by a preponderance of the benign-looking cells. Mm. And the way to reveal them was by looking uh, at each at many, many hundreds of cells. And so a lot of our technology then turned to learning how to do that. So we set ourselves a goal for doing that. And around 2008, so only two years later, yeah. um, we had our first successes uh, in doing that. And that was based in part on um, DNA sequencing. So DNA sequencing became an economically efficient way to gather information about the genome. And we worked out methods so that we could do it from even a single cell. Hmm. And we had the help of some other methods, but technology that had been developed, I think, for bacteria. And they worked when we applied them uh, to human cells. So we published the first papers on tumor heterogeneity, seen from the point of view of single cells. And that was, I think, eventually published in maybe 2010, because it always takes years to finish yes. writing a paper. But um, so that's the history of that. I mean, we've done, we've evolved much beyond that so, since that time. So, but, so yeah, and, and so, so tell me about that. Tell me about the evolution, and, and tell me what you are working on now. How, how are you? How are you translating that? Are you are you focused on it at the beginning of this conversation? You um, outlined kind of the clinical versus the genetic. Is your focus now on the genetic, or or what what's next in terms of uh, the technology? Well, anybody anybody who knows my lab knows that focus is a word that is, is not well well applied. We do many 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 things. Terrific. So we're I, still, tell me about we're, them. We're still trying to. Uh, find a niche for the single cell analysis for prostate cancer. Yeah, um, we develop technology that makes it increasingly cheap mm. and increasingly more um, friendly, so it is easier for other people to do. 
Um, we also started to think about um, single cells in the blood. Uh, and one of my colleagues was one of the first to show that there are often single cells from a cancer in the blood system. Um, there were two labs to demonstrate that. And uh, that was, again, from prostate cancer, but I think we know that it's also true uh, for some breast cancers. And so that started our thinking about um, what can we tell from looking at the blood of a person. And that became um, a very um, productive field uh, that emanated from many quarters, not just our own. Uh, people began finding signals for the tumor in DNA in the blood, as well as in cells in the blood. And we've been developing techniques aimed at achieving two goals in that arena. The first goal is if a person has a cancer, to be able to determine uh, how much of that cancer load they still carry after treatment. So, for example, suppose that somebody had a tumor removed. Yeah. Then there should be very little signal for that cancer in their blood because the cancer, hopefully, is gone. Mm -hmm. But if we had very sensitive methods, we might be able to see that the cancer, maybe after a year or two years or even five or ten, um, has reappeared. And we want to know that at the earliest possible time. Yeah. Because often what happens is, um, you know, the patient has been in remission, has been clear of cancer, and then some years later, they start developing symptoms. And by the time they're, they were showing symptoms, uh, the cancer has spread to many sites in the body and it's too late to do anything. But we theorized that if one had an early detection system, we could see the, uh, er, maybe we could see yeah. the earliest signs of the cancer returning. And even though you might not know where it is in the body, you might be able to treat it with this or that uh, chemotherapy and then be able to measure the decline again. So that... Um, that is one of the goals of looking uh, for the traces of the tumor in the blood system. And uh, one needs a system that is relatively non-invasive so that a patient would come in every six months, have their blood drawn, and then we would look for signs that the cancer is still um, sort of... Uh, Not there, uh, I guess. contained. Yeah. 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 And, and th the second goal... Yeah is far more ambitious, although that's an extremely ambitious goal. That's an extremely ambitious goal, the first one. Maybe it's an extremely just... ambitious goal, and one that I think is going to be achieved. Yeah. There's no question in my mind that we will achieve that. And you can imagine. Uh, we, or other we or other people will achieve that. There, will, there are already a host of, of very good ideas out there that show promise. And what's goal um, number two? Goal number two is to get cancer before uh, the patient or the physician could know it's there. With a blood test. Wow. And there's a lot of money that's been um, invested in that arena. Um, um, hundreds of millions of dollars in the commercial arena. Um, and we're 
sort of a small player in that field, but we have very, very, very good ideas about how to do it. And um, that's the other active area of our research. And we think there's promise on that front as well. And the future there is it would be a little bit like a, um, you know, colonoscopy, but less invasive, um, where one could find evidence. Um, somebody's got a neoplasm, we would yeah. be able to tell where that neoplasm is taking place, whether it's breast or liver or renal, and hopefully with a... Uh, um, high specificity so that nobody becomes alarmed. That is, you know, we only get positive signal when there's something really to look for. And we could tell the radiologist where to look for it. And that one would then be able, now I'm, now I'm combining ideas, to say, oh yes, in this organ there is a growth and it's of the dangerous kind. Yep. And then one would be able to intervene early and um, we would reduce uh, death by cancer. So that's the second of our goals. And they really do align with what you noted earlier, um, an early detection system. And it's detecting, uh, you know, it sounds like you're, you know, simultaneously well, potentially focusing on, on severity and lo existence, severity, location, some combination exactly. of those. Right, and, right. I, a lot of the early detection doesn't evaluate severity, which bothers me. I'm sure. So you have the situation in prostate cancer. That's the situation in prostate cancer. Yeah. Very good at detection, very poor at severity. Hmm. Um, well, then you've that's left one yourself. Of the things we're trying to, then you've left pardon? yourself. Then, then you've left yourself something to do. I mean, it, you know, otherwise you will have you would have accomplished everything already. What if we reach our goals? <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah, I'm <laughs> 70. You know, I'd like to get some of them. <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, so, yeah, I would. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that you would love to. I know. I know that you're joking, and we we know that you have, and uh, and we all we all expect and and hope that you will continue to. How did you? I just in listening to you and and going through the history, I, I find myself curious even before the history that you've described already um you, you yeah. yourself how did you get into this was it always i mean going back to growing up for you personally was it always science did you um you know no. what was it oh well let's see my first goal was to be middleweight heavyweight middle heavyweight champion <laughs> okay that, and that was when i was three uh-huh <laughs> and that's because i had an older brother and um I used to hit him, so he, he he filled me with the idea of becoming middle heavyweight champion. My next goal was to be a a rocket engineer. Oh. I wanted to build rockets, go to the planets, and then I got over that. And I became interested in rocket propellants, which mm. got me interested in chemistry, and the chemistry got me interested in mathematics, mm. and. Um, then I wanted to be a mathematician. And that was already, I guess, by seventh grade. And then somewhere along there, I toyed with the idea of being a writer, but I ended up going back into mathematics, which I pursued in, in college. And then towards the end of college, I became um, somewhat regretful that I wasn't doing something of social utility. So I decided to go to medical school. Mm. This was a radical departure for me. Hmm. And um, 
wrong-headed, but um, I didn't finish medical school. I went from medical school into science, back to science, because there was too much unknown in medicine. Hmm. But um, I was in medical school really impressed by its need for science. That medical science was in a fairly, fairly abysmal state. So when I went back to do research and I finally got my PhD degree in microbiology, it was with the intent of doing a kind of science that would be relevant uh, to medical problems. And the largest medical problem that I could see was uh, cancer. Yeah. How- so that's how. Yeah. That's how I ended up being a cancer researcher. Fas- fascinating. Also, path. one of the most interesting. Because, you know, the cell is turning against the body. Yeah. And how does the body, you know, I mean, the body's, the cell of the body is really a disciplined army of dedicated cells. So, you know, the fact that a cell could lose that discipline mm. um, seemed like that should be actually a relatively easy thing to do. <laughs> so, you know, why aren't we all dying from cancer? So there was clearly, you know, tremendous amount of interesting biology in cancer biology. So not only was it an important medical problem, uh, but it was also going to be interesting. And one of the things that I try to do in life is to have fun while giving, giving help to others. I think if you can have fun while helping others, you, you really can't maximize life more than that. So no, that's that quite a combination. Like a, yeah, that seemed to be... And, and so in that same lecture, that yes. same lecture where I, um, which was titled uh, "Fighting Cancer One Cell at a Time," I started that lecture with a joke. Do you know the joke? You tell me the joke. Okay, the joke is. Um, let's see. I have to remember it. Oh, um, what does philanthropy and sex have in common? <laughs> is this a PG answer? We, 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 yeah. Okay. I mean, well, I, I can put to, an explicit. This was, this was to an audience of about a thousand ladies. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, okay. I mean, well, Maybe I, I, I can't comment ladies. there, but you know, if, okay. if we need to, so, we'll slap an explicit rating okay. on this you podcast. Always, you can always bleak it out. Well, <laughs> what they have in common is that you can have fun while giving pleasure to others. <laughs> so they were they were at this you know they were at this luncheon and they were all having a good time telling, you know, enjoying each other's company, but they were giving money to the lab. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I was making an analogy between philanthropy, the pleasure that you have, you can, you can, you can give pleasure to others because the lab enjoys getting money so it can do its research Yes. while enjoying it yourself. So that's the thing it has in common. That's a great with line. Sex. <laughs> yeah. I, maybe I don't remember the exact wording, yeah, but it's cool. online. You can you can look for it online. Yes, I saw it. I saw it online. It. Yes, yeah, yeah, it's there. It's 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 there. Someone searches you. YouTube does not forget. It's got all your greatest hits there. I can I can vouch for that. Speaking of greatest hits, um, what role has BCRF played in your research? Oh, BCRF support goes back. Oh gosh to the uh, late 90s when we were just beginning to shift to genome analysis of the cancer cell. And that's the area we are in now. We would not have been able to do it uh, without the BCRF. So they were 
they were the source of funding that enabled us to pivot into this area. They uh, gambled on us. Um, I, there's no way I can overestimate their importance. Uh, we would not have gotten support to do what we, uh, the direction we took from uh, the NIH, and it determined our future. And all along the way, you know, initially the BCRF was a large portion of our funding, uh, and with time it's grown to be a smaller portion of the funding as more and more of our research have expanded in this area. Um, but they always play a part at sort of the leading edge. So right at the moment, um, the BCRF is funding an area in... Um, what's called spatial transcriptomics, which is about as futuristic mm. um, now as our early work was back then. Mm. And it would be a little bit difficult to explain uh, just what that's about, but it is, in effect, an attempt to use uh, the DNA, DNA sequencing as a kind of microscope. Wow. So you get a full picture instead of getting a histopathology report of the cancer with all the cells in relationship to each other and to the blood vessels and to support stroma and inflammatory cells. You get a much more precise picture from the RNA and the DNA in those cells. So we're trying to basically convert DNA sequencing into a microscope. Wow. And um, we think that will maybe in the distant future be how one really gets the ultimate information about uh, just what is cooking in your cancer. Uh, so, another great title, just what is cooking in your uh, cancer. What is cooking in your cancer, yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, that, that, yeah. One's, uh, that one's yours. When, and you'll have to promise me uh, that, that you'll come back and, and do another conversation, uh, you know, once you're there on, on I'm ha happy to. I do just about anything for BCRF. Uh, that's that's greatly great, appreciated. Great organization. Well, great organization. And, it, and it's clear to me, and uh, to go back to maybe I think it was the uh, the seven year old you. Um, it, it's it's clear that you're still reaching for the stars, uh, and and it's interesting that at one point you were uh, potentially interested in in the cosmos. Um, your focus has gone down to the single cell level, as we discussed, but. Uh, um, clearly, in getting to talk with you, um, you are you are you are reaching for the stars. So thank you, and, and thank you for the work that you've done. Yeah, thanks for the compliment. It's been a pleasure. That was my conversation with Dr. Michael Wiggler. My thanks to Dr. Wiggler for joining, and you for listening. To learn more about breast cancer research or to subscribe to our podcast, go to bcrf.org/podcasts.